Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. Your hosts, Russell and Dr. Pete. We're solution architects based out of Australia, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Tech Chat. Pete and I are joined today by a very special guest. We have Adrian Cockcroft with us. Adrian has joined AWS recently as our VP of Cloud Architecture Strategy. And many of you may be familiar with him from his work at Netflix, where he was Cloud Architect. He's also worked at Battery Ventures as a technology fellow, and previously in his career was a distinguished engineer at places like Sun Microsystems and eBay. He's a very strong supporter of open source and also microservices, and we're delighted to have him on the show today. Adrian, welcome to Tech Chat. Thanks very much. Great to be here. So, uh, Adrian, we've got a couple of questions for you today. Um, so, thank you for joining us. It's a real pleasure to have you in sunny Australia. I know you're traveling for the summits in APAC here. Um, and uh, just to kick off, so, um, so you've been around the block many times. Uh, you're well known for being a key proponent of open source inside Netflix. Um, you know, we've been in battery, battery ventures, uh, talking about technology and helping you know, investors and companies get to the uh, best outcomes. Um, but we're just actually wondering, what does your day look like? Because you've joined Amazon recently. Uh, so what is your role? Because uh, we've got you down as the VP of Cloud Architecture. That's your official title. Um, but it would be great to demystify your role and tell our listeners, what does your day look like? Sure. Um... I've been getting that question quite a bit. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's, uh, the, way, the short answer is I really have three, three jobs. Right. And the VP Cloud Architecture Strategy job is really to go talk to lots of customers, particularly trying to find the customers that are pushing the architecture to its limit. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to focus mostly on the Netflix-like customers, right? the ones who are all in or are in a new market, or they're scaling the fastest, or they're using the most advanced features, and try to figure out where that architecture leads us. So that's kind of the architecture strategy bit as mm-hmm. I'm interpreting it. They gave me the job title, and that's what I'm running with. Right. right? <laughs> um, so, and then I take what I learn from talking to lots of, I do lots of executive briefings, mm-hmm. and you know, this week I've been you know, end-to-end customer meetings, but that's what I like, I, I like the variety of Hearing lots of customer stories, they're fascinating. Lots of repeated patterns that I can share across customers, and every now and again, something completely out of the blue, interesting. I haven't run into that before. And then um, the other side of that is uh, I work for Ariel Kalman, who's a VP marketing, um, and he's got you know people on the same team as me, include Jeff Barr, uh, Stephen Auburn. Um, there's the groups that operate basically the marketing functions across AWS, which is the out, outreach for all the products and all of the events that we run. So on that side of the business. And then the other, you know, there's all these service teams and they come up with ideas and they come up exactly. with roadmaps and they come up with um, all their PRFAQ, you know, press release uh, sort yeah. of so proposals. And I'm starting to get, you know, people kind of get invited to go, what do you think of this? And nice. give input, and I'm trying to synthesize what we, you know, what the customers are looking at and feed that back into the service teams. So that's a fun role, enjoying that, trying to sort of see where we go. And I've always liked to be at the leading edge of technology, figure out where we go next. That's one of the fun things about being at a VC firm for a few years. Mm. 
there are startups that still haven't come out and they pr- right. probably have a different name from when I last saw them. <laughs> yeah. And I was walking around reInvent going, oh, they launched. <laughs> I remember them from two years ago and all this stuff. So I was going around reInvent going, trying to figure out who had actually released what. But So that, there's an interesting sense of seeing the early seed stage companies forming in this space. It's a diff- different kind of level. So that's one job. Second job I have is, uh, as I was joining, they were saying, we really need somebody to pay more attention to open source as right. a outbound engagement with the ecosystems thing. And it, you know, it was sort of, there were people doing it across AWS, but it didn't really have somebody providing a focus on it. So I picked up that as a, um, as, and I said, okay, well, I'll build a team. So I, I've, I've hired currently two or three people. I've got mm-hmm. a few more people we're hiring. Um, we're building an open source engagement team, and we're going to start turning up at conferences, sending people out, doing presentations, explaining the the big picture of what AWS is doing in open source, because we're actually doing quite a lot more than most people think. Um, and also, we're providing sort of consulting to different groups. So the some of those groups are engineering teams, so we can have them integrate better with open source ecosystems that they have some relationship with either we're running some open source project as a service or we're consuming it to run a service yeah. or it's got some relationship so we can help broker some of those those interfaces some teams are doing a great job others need some help so we're yeah. trying to just provide you know, pick the patterns that are working and make them more consistent so and, then, and then there are customers like netflix oss like yeah. and, and my you know, there's a couple of things which, you're, like, when you realize it, it's a little bit. You know, go to go to the AWS website and search for Netflix OSS. It's really much there. Yeah, right. And in fact, search for open source, and you'll get a 404. Right. <laughs> <laughs> this is okay. So a fairly obvious thing to go fix. So at some point in the future, open source will not be a 404. There will be a web page. Nice. Right? Yeah. And on that web page will be these are the events we're going to be speaking at, these are the projects we're sponsoring, these are the projects we're giving credits to because the open source non-profit foundations, we want to give them free credits for running on AWS. Um, and these are the customer projects that we think are interesting and we'll sort of run them by the well-architected guide to make sure that they look good. Mm-hmm. And we can kind of do this. This looks like a well-architected project from a customer which has something to do with AWS, which looks interesting. We can put some Netflix OSS things there, some stuff Capital One is doing, you know, look around the industry. So I'm looking for customers who are using open source as a way to have a conversation with AWS yeah. about a gap they saw or a, a way to combine our services that they thought was interesting. And we can, I can engage the right service teams with them and we can help make more customers aware of an interesting project um, and sort of push that out, which is, helps the customer, it helps AWS, and it maybe points us at something where there's a gap where we can you know, work on evol- evolving our side of that product to make this open source project work better. Yeah. So Adrian, a lot of people, you know, open source is big, it's, it's time, it's come, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you convince the business, you know, the other organizations around the value proposition of open sourcing the technologies? Often we hear, you know, we don't want to open source this uh, because we feel that we might be losing IP. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what's your counter argument to sort of saying, support open source, this is really where everyone's going. Um, what do you say to the folks who are trying to hold on to the internally awesome tools that could actually benefit a wider community? There's, you know, there are four or five different reasons why we ended up, you know, that you could use to justify open source. Right. From the Netflix point of view, I'll talk a bit about why we did it at Netflix, mm-hmm. and then there's kind of a slightly separate set of reasons why AWS is interested. 
Um, the first thing at Netflix was we were trying to uh, hire better developers, right? And having an open source project is a great way to attract developers. And some of the best developers in the industry have large open source projects, mm -hmm. and that's why they're recognized for doing that. And if you have a active open source program, you tend to acquire those developers. You know, it's sort of a herding instinct or something. Yeah, it's it's like, a magnet, right? Yeah, it's yeah. a magnet. And like, okay, there are people like me working there, and obviously they are contributing. So I can come in and I can bring my project, and it's a friendly place to do that. Mm -hmm. And um, that worked out well for Netflix. We hired some very senior people, and um, we were able to you know, sort of develop, internally develop people to the point where they are very visible open source project contributors. Uh, and they're the, you know, effectively the, the personal market value of that developer shot up, mm. right? Yeah. And, and then you have to kind of figure out how to pay them their market value, which <laughs> Netflix has got a system for doing that. A lot of other companies kind of, that's one of the problems you get, right? That's a fear, right? If, if I get my developer to this uh, you know, yeah. hero status, I'm going to lose that particular yeah. high performance. But, yeah, but if, what, would it, what would you pay to hire someone like that? Precisely. You should yeah. pay them what you would have paid what you would have paid what to hire would. them, yeah. right? Yeah. So if you develop someone into a really, really high-end role, they're, they're valuable, mm -hmm. right? So part of it is getting your head around that. It might be some arguments with HR to get that to work <laughs> right at some companies, but that's one of the things that Netflix is actually pretty good at is this mark-to-market um, model they have for, for compensation. So that was one piece. And then there was this idea that we could use it to help validate our architecture uh, by going out. There was just one of the reasons I was doing so many talks at conferences about Netflix and the architecture mm -hmm. was that, and then the open source people saying, "Yeah, that looks great," but how do we, how do you run that? Well, okay, now we started saying, "Well, now we have open source projects," and people said, "Well, I like these projects, but this one doesn't work." Yeah, there's a better way of doing that. So we discovered parts of the architecture which worked really well and which really filled a need, and which some parts where we just duplicated something that already existed, mm -hmm. or it just over time turns out wasn't a great way of doing it. So the validating stuff in 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 public is really, really powerful. You get mm -hmm. lots of eyeballs, and mm -hmm. you can see the adoption, and you can see whether you've got a good idea or not. So the third thing was, if you think about the, um, if you're a pioneer and you're getting out ahead of a market, um, and everyone eventually catches up, they may base off of some totally different set of technologies to solve the same problem, and you end up sort of down a cul-de-sac. Mm -hmm. uh, and you go, like, every now and again, you have to revert to the mainstream, yeah. because you're a pioneer. Mm -hmm. So the way to avoid that trap is to create a group of fast followers uh, by creating I mean, the open source, open sourcing something. Right. So now it wasn't just like Netflix using autoscalers in this way. We released Asgard, which used autoscalers in a particular pattern, and lots of people started doing it. And the number of people using the autoscaling service at AWS increased, and they were all had the same API calling pattern that, that Netflix did. Right. So AWS could optimize for that pattern and a much larger consumption of that particular service. And if you're using a cloud service, you want to be a small fish in a big pond. Mm -hmm. You want to be statistically insignificant as mm -hmm. a user of any one capability of the cloud, because when you're statistically insignificant, it looks infinite. Exactly. Right? Yeah. The problem is if you end up as a shark in a paddling pool, mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and you're like 80% yeah. of all the use of this new function that came out, because you jumped on it early, and you go like, yeah. every time we twitch, it falls over, yeah. because there isn't room to move, right? You know, if we just double our usage of something and it collapses because we were 80% of the use, that's obviously not going to work. Now, 
in the early days, there were many services, well, several services where Netflix was, you know, it was we don't, actually, we don't actually know the percentage, but we knew that we kept snapping the elastic. <laughs> <laughs> but nowadays, it's very hard to snap it. And that's part of the reason that we were promoting AWS from Netflix's side. We wanted Netflix, we wanted AWS to be large and successful so we could be that small fish. Right. They wanted the pond to get bigger, bigger than Netflix got bigger. Right, so rise the tide for everybody. Yeah, so it. it was important that the, because the strategy was all in, so you, if your all-in strategy doesn't work, if you end up bigger than the thing you're trying to be in, right? So, so that that's important. Um, and so, open source was a way to create this fast follower group of people that are all doing similar things in the same in a similar way. And then the final thing is, um, one of the first projects that Netflix released was Curator, which is a thing for making Zookeeper easier to use mm -hmm. and, and work with. Um, and at some point, the developer that was working on it went, we should be an open source project, but it isn't really a patch to something else, it's a thing, so that was the first project we put out there. And a bit later on, I think it was HBase said, we need, you know, we need to clean up our, our, um, our Zookeeper APIs, and this looks really good, but, it's, but we're an Apache project, and we, we're talking to an Apache project, and we can't do that through in a project that's a Netflix project. We, mm -hmm. we want this to be an Apache project. Right. So we took Curator, we went through the Apache incubator process, and it's now a, a Apache. Apache, incubator, mm -hmm. Apache Curator. And this was great, and eventually the developer left Netflix. Right. And he's off running around doing something else. Um, I forget, it works for Elastic or something mm -hmm. like that nowadays. But um, there was actually, I don't think there's anyone maintaining the software who works at Netflix anymore. Netflix is continuing to use it, and, and it has free updates, mm -hmm. and has all this engineering resource and all this integration and doesn't have to spend any money yeah. on that, right? Yeah. So we've outsourced the engineering of a critical piece of software yeah. by open sourcing it. So, you, so actually, there's a cost benefit, and uh, you know, yeah, from a, by, from a by giving life it away. Management. Yeah, you, you yeah we've just like we've just moved up a level. This has just become heavy lifting that somebody else is doing for us. It's undifferentiated heavy lifting. Right? Yeah, we had to create the, the first version of it, but we didn't need to own it in the long term. If we could say to somebody else to maintain it for us, that's a that's a good win. Yeah. Right? So That's the, a clever innovation, right? Yeah, yeah. Fantastic, yeah. yeah. It's a neat yeah. trick. I mean, talking of innovation, we obviously talk a lot at AWS about innovation. Mm -hmm. When you talk to enterprises especially, how do you encourage them to, to innovate more quickly? What I usually say is you have to get out of the way of innovation. You don't add innovation to a company culture, like we are going to hire a VP of innovation, all right, mm -hmm. and, and we're going to form a research lab, and that doesn't actually usually have a great mm -hmm. outcome. Right. Um, the... Like telling, getting, getting out of the way means you're you're basically telling everybody they're expected to innovate. Yeah, and anybody can have a good idea, and you basically have to encourage the good ideas, and make it cheap to try things out. Mm. And this is just you know, I have a great idea for something, and I need two terabytes of RAM to try something out. Right? Okay, try that. Try, try going to your operations department for your on-prem data center and saying I need a machine with two terabytes of RAM for a few hours. Yeah, it's not going to happen. Yeah, right, you get, if, even if you decide to go and ask, you'll get laughed out of the office. Right? And maybe even a business case even before you get there, right? Yeah, it'll yeah. take months, and it's like, what do you want this for? And it's like, no, I just wanted to try something out. Yeah. Right? Does this thing scale? And then you go, okay, well, I could click a button, get an X1 instance for a couple of hours for a cost of lunch, basically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. tens of bucks. So, uh, and you, and you've just proved something. So the, the, the idea that you can get state-of-the-art, um, globally distributed, any scale you want things 
on demand instantly. Uh, that unlocks a huge chunk of the, like, I have an idea and what does it take to try it out, yeah. right? It, it, it unlocks a, a big chunk of that problem is whenever there's an infrastructure component to an idea, it becomes difficult to do. And then you go, well, I want to try an alternative version of some software. I need to stand it up alongside the other one, you know, mm. but the data center's full and, you know, no, mm. I need, so the idea that you can have short-lived experiments is really powerful yeah. for unlocking that innovation. It's, it's incredibly frustrating to have an idea and just have it blocked by lack of capacity or resources or something like that. And I think that, that's one piece of it uh, that the AWS and cloud are really doing. And then the other part is that you want your idea to be building on top of other things rather than duplicating something else. Yeah. Right. So you want to be standing on the shoulders of the tallest giant. Mm. Right, and you're going. I have an idea for using Lambda at the edge. Okay, we just released that. Yeah, <laughs> okay, let's go and play around. And I'm deploying my Lambda function to what is it, 72 pops, or did we launch another one before it since like since it's over 70? Yeah, 72. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to keep that number. Like, it keeps growing every day. It go, yeah, yeah. That, that's one of those numbers. Yeah. So, do you have any frameworks or sort of approaches that you recommend? I mean. The experimentation idea, you know, people I think are starting to really understand in the enterprise. Uh, but do you have any frameworks? Obviously, having a sponsor or overseeing it. Um, the, I think the one way of doing it is to have regular hack days. Uh huh. Yeah. So create the. It culture. just yeah the yeah. Cult, it's setting up a hack day like a regular expectation there is a hack day and getting everyone to buy into it that's really something management has to do because you've got to get it you've got to pick the good the right week to do it when there's no critical launches and then you know. And yeah, some people drop out because they got busy. But you want to create space for yeah. people to have a real hack day. Mm -hmm. And then permission and rewards and whatever. And it turns out the best reward for a hack day project is like, we'll take the best one, we'll give you a product manager and that will go to production. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The winning, that, that turned out to be, yeah, we could give you a little token and I have a bunch of strange little, you know, trophies for my hack day projects right. that, where I did some stuff. But the real, really good one was, you know, we, we have a, we have, we have some project management resource you know, earmarked for the winners yeah. to take whatever you did, whatever we think is the best thing, and just like crank that thing off into production as a feature and you get the, I did that, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and some of the Hack Day projects, I did, I did the first ever Netflix iPhone app. Right, well, cool. We were debugging the API, which we hadn't launched yet, which is why there weren't any other ones, because you couldn't actually build an iPhone app, because there was no API. We yeah. had a, so as part of debugging the public API, I built an iPhone app that talked to it and then stuck it in the App Store for a buck. And made some money on it for a year or two until Netflix came out with their free app and killed my market. Um, well, that's innovation, right? I mean, you might have yeah. a shelf life, yeah. an expiry date. Before but, you know, something happens, right? Yeah, yeah. I, and I did a prototype of Netflix for Kids on an iPad just before Netflix for Kids came out. So there were there were things where I had an idea of something, and you know, I was a manager, I wasn't writing code, it wasn't my day job to do that, but I could form a team, and people got out of their zone, so managers would write code, mm -hmm. somebody from finance like, was a product manager on one of these projects, they had an idea, they were from finance, but they wanted to be pretend they were a, a product manager for, well, they were a product manager mm -hmm. for a few days, and you, we mixed all these things up, um, and... Those, that, that was a very nice way of getting, unlocking all kinds of ideas and things that you didn't think were possible got knocked down and made, oh really, you can do that, yeah. that kind of stuff. So the, 
there's a few tricks like that, just uh -huh. making some space to do it and making it a regular thing. Like every six months in the schedule, there there is a, in the hack calendar, mm -hmm. there is a hack day. Yeah. So what's the optimum hack day length? Because we, we, we do that internally as well yeah. uh, in our teams. Um, what's your recommendation? What, what do you think is the optimum? Because usually it's the first few hours is getting the tools set up and you yeah. know, get normalized and put into teams. Any sort of, uh, I guess, best practices around how to run an effective hack day? Hack day, a few different things. Or a hack, or a hack a weekend? Of, yeah. Yeah, I've done a few of these different things. Um, I've been to some externally organized hack weekends. There was the iPad Dev Camp and some stuff like that mm -hmm. that I did. Um, let's talk about Dev Camp one for a bit. That's a weekend, and they start on Friday night, yep. and you just turn up and see if you can form a team and an idea, mm -hmm. and people are bumping into each other, so it's a social yeah. thing. Yeah. You're trying to find, and there's sort of a chat thing where people go, I need somebody to do this, and that's the mm -hmm. setup time. Um, and then uh, basically you have like 24 by 7 open place with like food and coffee and whatever. So most people go home, but maybe some people work on. And then we did all day Saturday and then Sunday afternoon was like the deadline and the report out. And you spend Sunday afternoon, invite your friends and family and we'll have a little what did we build thing. Right? Yeah. So that's kind of a weekend one. Um, and, you know, they used to p take over a facility that PayPal had in San Jose and do these weekend mm -hmm. things. It was quite a nice little setup. So that requires a bit of corporate sponsorship of a location to do it. That was a cross-industry one. Got like it. it was just, you just signed up. The, um, the Netflix ones were usually midday to midday. Right. Okay, so right. 24 hours. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So and you can work through the night if you want. Mm -hmm. You know, there will yeah. be pizza and there will be whatever Caffeine. and the room will <laughs> yeah, be open yeah. and we'll have, yeah. have 24 hour security for that day so the uh -huh. building doesn't close, right? But So there's a little bit of overhead for doing it, but so there's a bit of night burning the burning the midnight oh. oil. But uh, And then midday the next day you stop and then you spend the afternoon doing a report back. Yeah. It's yeah. usually like a Thursday or something like that. It's towards the end of the week and the report back is Friday afternoon and you know, people got a bit of time to clear the decks before they get onto it. Uh, I was a judge in the... I've been actually a judge on a bunch of hackathons in different companies. Um, the AWS reInvent hackathon mm -hmm. was a really interesting one. I think there were 40 teams of four or five people. Uh, several hundred people came together yeah. from all around the world to form teams. And they didn't know what they were going to do until 8 a.m., I think it was. Mm -hmm. um, there was. And then 12 hours later, they were done. Wow. Right? And the fun thing was every project used Lambda, and most of them right. were completely serverless. Yeah. And it was looking at what they built in 12 hours, and they didn't know that they were told what the project was going to be that morning, basically. Right, right. right? So no one could pre-build stuff. And at the end of the day, there were these immensely sophisticated, globally scalable systems that had been built for doing alert propagation of, you know, the, the alerts that say, like, there's a emergency alerting system right. is one mm -hmm. of the examples. So, you know, the, there's some kid being abducted and you're, everyone's phone buzzes at the same time, that, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. system. And the people that built the, the, the evaluating team were the actual nonprofit that runs this thing. And they looked at this and said, you've built something that's more functional than the thing we just spent several years <laughs> building in 12 hours with four people. We don't know <laughs> uh, whether uh, to laugh or cry. For me, it was, yeah. no, it was like, and it was had voice active, they had Alexa, everyone had an Echo Dot, they were all talking. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. oh, sorry, it said the word um, on the podcast, so Echo. Right. Um, but <laughs> it all light up now. <laughs> she, she who should not be named. Um, but the, um, it, was, it was amazing. For me, it was a light bulb going off. Like, you can develop at a ridiculous speed with Lambda. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. and it was like, it's not just a new programming model, it is 
it is a you're assembling it and the analogy I came up with is instead of like if you give somebody his 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 a Java compiler go mm -hmm. it's like you give you a ball of modeling clay now make something recognizable mm -hmm. and the other one is like I gave you a bag of Lego bricks and the instructions to turn it into you know whatever the falling water model or whatever some piece of architecture that you're supposed yeah. to recognize and you finish building it it looks vaguely like falling water if you squint at it <laughs> yeah, that's right. yeah but pick a few steps back yeah. but it, it took 10 minutes to build yeah. or half an hour or whatever yeah. mm -hmm. and if you and if you give the same kit bag to 10 people they'll come up with the same thing yeah so what is the benefit of being able to build something that is a bit rough and ready and it's very constrained, but it's so quick to build, yeah. right? It, you have to glue together these off-self services as opposed to the full custom model when you'd still be you know, modeling little bricks and trying to make things that look like whatever uh, weeks later. Yeah, so then we, we take the, the heavy lifting away, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so part of this is this pace of innovation with Lambda is just off the charts. And I, I, I don't think people that, people that haven't tried it haven't really realized that most of the, it's like 30 lines of code per Lambda function mm -hmm. and you just built, you glued together these really high level building bricks. And I think that's one of the most exciting things right now we're seeing that, that you can just go off the charts with innovation if you get the tooling that, that supports it. Yeah. And, and the things we're doing at Lambda now, like Lambda at the Edge and Greengrass and all this stuff, there's, a, there's an immensely powerful model here and this is one of the most fascinating things for me is seeing these these incredibly event-driven distributed systems that are being mm -hmm. built and deployed globally mm -hmm. in days yeah yeah right and that, that I, don't, I don't think we've had that before as a capability so so what about people that have tech debt um, so this, this is awesome for brand new yeah. projects and you know being able to build exponential sure. functionality in 24 hours is absolutely phenomenal well, I can rewrite it from scratch in yeah. a week yeah uh, but what <laughs> about I'm it? done right Debt, debt, <laughs> debt's paid off yeah it's but like it, okay what is the core business logic hiding in that you know 10 year old Windows application mm -hmm. you know, like it, it must do something let's see if we pick it apart mm -hmm. you know you can there's a if, that's I think that it moves the needle on rewrite versus fork you know, forklift, yeah. right? Yeah. If you could, if the possibility is that you could rewrite it from scratch and extract the core business logic into some functions mm -hmm. and build the, you know, the Lego building block Lambda version of this yeah. thing, I think that there's a there's a good possibility there. And I have this other thing, and this is this is getting a bit. I like to be a bit provocative occasionally, but by all means, we love it on the show. <laughs> yeah. There's a bunch of mainframes out there still running. Yeah. And if you squint at mainframes, a lot of the workloads are little COBOL programs. Mm -hmm. What these COBOL programs do is they read some files, munch some data, and write some files. Mm -hmm. And you squint at that and go, S3, Lambda function, kind of done, really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, and you go, so I'm thinking, I'm looking for the first mainframe that gets replaced by a Lambda app that runs in the free tier. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With some blocks in the middle of the code. code because code you can do a million yeah. Lambda invocations per month, and there's probably mainframes out there. I mean, this is just, like, I'm, trying yeah. to, I'm not trying to annoy, I have, I have a bunch of friends that run mainframes, though, yeah. so I'm not trying to annoy them too much. But seriously, you could probably replace a multi-million dollar mainframe installation by something that runs for free. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> 3T's got a fairly high level of mix. It's got a fairly high level and you can do a lot with it. So that I'm just sort of throwing that out there to see if I can like rattle the cage and see yeah. if somebody wants to go try and do well, that. Well, see, most people are trying to build, you know, think of Lambda and the Lego block. So we do need COBOL now as a support. It's, 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 it's a Lambda yeah, runtime, yeah, right? That's right, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll give uh, our, would, our buddies a call back in Seattle. That um, would be funny. Because people look at you know, innovation around the edges, and I call it dancing around monoliths, right? Mm -hmm. You've got a mainframe, and you, know, you don't have access to the source code because you bought an off-the-shelf app, or 
in a mainframe case, you know, the developers won't be around anymore because oh, yeah. it's been written 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, how do you sell that to the business? You know, let's go and rebuild our mainframe application because they will think, do we have the people? Do we have the understanding? Our business is codified in some obscure COBOL, um, you know, yeah. implementation. I don't think there's a really good answer for that because there's so many different situations. But if you can figure out what it does, you just have to. Rever- at some point, you're going to have to reverse engineer it from scratch. Yeah. You know, I was talking to a customer earlier today who was talking about you know, trying to get up a Bofin BMS. Okay, not a lot of Open BMS uh, skills out there right yeah, now. Yeah. Um, so you know, eventually you just have to go and unpick the thing and start from scratch and what does it do whereas you know it has some kind of interface that's consuming a file or there's a protocol just reverse engineer look at the bits on the wire you know point wireshark at it and see what's going on um look at the disks and see what's on the disk and you just you just have to kind of and it turns out these older systems they're kind of inflated in people's mind's eye Mm -hmm. they're they were built at a time when systems were smaller they are actually probably there isn't a huge amount of code in a lot of them. I mean, some of them are quite big, but once yeah. you get to the guts of the business logic, mm-hmm. they they are probably more tractable than you'd think. When you look at one of the big problems here is the database, really, and then the database schemas. And we've done tens of thousands of database migrations. I think the last number I saw was twenty-two thousand. Twenty-two thousand. Yeah. So this is like your classic database that mm-hmm. you've been building on. And um, I have a little presentation I'm working on where I talk about this as the kitchen sink schema. Oh, where yeah. everything gets piled into the sink and you go like, I need to, I, need, I, got a new, I need a new table. What shall I do? Well, oh, it's really difficult to start an entire new database, so I'll just add it to the one that's there. And well, it's got some fields in common, so I should normalize it in. And so you get whatever this new thing was just tangled into the mess. Yeah. Uh-huh. And the kitchen sink is full of some broken plates, a few broken glass, sharp knives, right. dirty water, a few flies buzzing around it, <laughs> and things swimming in it. Um, and, and you go like, oh, I have to go and modify that. And if you touch it and it breaks. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and after several years, going back to my Netflix experience, we had a, I think at one point, so it's like an eight-year-old Oracle database that we've been changing every two weeks, and it was really unmodifiable at that point. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> the, it, everything you did to it broke it, yeah. and, and it was just way too complex. It was a pretty large, large schema, and so we started just picking pieces off. Mm-hmm. So the thing is, with cloud, as like creating a new database isn't a big, hard, complicated problem. It's a button click or an API call, and RDS or Aurora will start, or DynamoDB. It's like okay, done. A minute later, you're done. Um, then you, so you shouldn't be stuffing everything into the one database you've got. You should be creating as many database, new databases. So the first step is create new databases surrounding it. Yeah. And then you do the strangler pattern that you would people do with monoliths and microservices, but the database version of it is extracting views and tables and untangling and, until you get this rump of stuff that doesn't really matter left, which might be complicated, and you mm-hmm. can leave that running. But you've pulled out all the things that needed to scale or things that needed to innovate, yeah. and there's just some, maybe some tangle left. And maybe point DMS at that and trans- move that off into, you know, or you can use database migration at any stage in this to set it up. So the final thing you have is maybe you have 10 databases instead of one, mm-hmm. and each one contains a view or a schema. You, still, you have a new problem, which is like, uh, I can't do joins and transactions because yeah. there are 10 databases here. But there is no business in the world that has one database that's beyond a startup. Yeah. Uh, everyone already has multiple databases. Mm-hmm. So there are always cases where you've got to connect across databases. So you just have to scale that capability, like multi, 
not the data, was it master data management mm -hmm. or whatever you want to call it? That's right. You have to be able to do that at probably a larger scale. So invest in a master data management capability, which keeps these things in sync. Mm -hmm. Sprinkle your rights into them. Run overnight checks to make sure everything's still in sync, um, and just move on. And now, when you have a problem with one database, or you get some corruption because someone new app scribbled all over the data, you didn't take down your entire backend. You took mm -hmm. down one feature of the backend. Yeah. That's right. and, and that's the most common outage. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and so you want to be able to continue as backup and restore. But you you can have this system that is very like the thing with microservices. It's more available because the failures, the blast radius of failure is contained. And one of the tests you can do is what happens if this database, you know, do your chaos monkey for databases yeah. kind of thing, shut down this database. What breaks in the yeah. app? How do you signal that to the customer? Maybe part of the app stops working, but mostly it's still there, those kinds of things. Sure, so that's automation. Um, mm -hmm. So a quick question on A-B testing. Yeah. Because yeah, that, that, that the idea of you know, turning on features and turning them off, and yep. Netflix does a lot of that yep. around even like down to the image level, you know, when you browse the catalog. You sure. know? Any advice you have for folks, you know, how to actually automate that? Because that can become a very difficult, challenging way of yeah. managing the feature toggling that goes on and off. Any There's really there? two classes of businesses, right? Um, there's the direct-to-consumer business where the customer is a statistical average. Like Netflix is what, 87 million customers, I think was the last number. They are an averaged, you know, everything they do with customers is a test cell, like 50,000 people here, 100,000 mm -hmm. people here. That's their test cell. If, you're, if your product is selling to enterprises, right, you have a very different problem. I have a very small number of identified customers, and there it's mostly about feature flagging, and rolling out features customer by customer mm -hmm. and within a customer end user by end user so you have the advanced user team so it's much more specific um, and those are really two distinct problems and there's some nice capabilities a company called launch darkly that has a whole feature flagging system that's quite nice and just like don't need to build that anymore that's, cool okay you can get it as a service it's quite nice to do um, i haven't really seen um th there's an open source project I don't remember what it's called, but Intuit came up. It's on Intuit's site. Wasabi, right? Mm -hmm. AB, AB is West right. AB, right? So yeah, so Wasabi from Intuit is kind of the other one I've seen in the AB testing space, where you've got lots of customers. You put them in test cells. You have a control. You have your experience A B C D E. So it's mm -hmm. not just A and B. There's quite often multiple. There's yeah. the combination of everything, and then this is really a combination of five different things. So we'll take the things individually in a couple of combinations and try and pick out what's going on. And then you want to feed new customers to it rather than existing customers because they will be have less preconceived notion about the way things work. So there's you get better results that way, um, and you're. I, tend, I try to encourage people to set this up as a ground zero capability when they're building a new app. Like you're, you should build a customer database mm -hmm. and you should build an A-B test database and it should have customer ID and for each customer a list of test cells therein and which experience they're in. Right? And, and that's the sort of Netflix has got that. Everything they do is that way. And then you can start doing personalized experiences and start testing your way into what really works for different classes of customers. It's a very powerful technique. So you're basically doing hypothesis testing. Yeah. If you look at the Lean Enterprise book, there's a lot of good examples mm -hmm. in there on hypothesis testing and, and having that as your base paradigm for getting stuff done. So the product manager's job is to come up with a good hypothesis. The engineering manager's job is to come up with an efficient way to test that hypothesis. And the you know, the data science job is to tell, you know, how quickly can you tell 
whether the hypothesis is true or not with com what confidence interval. And those three teams work together very closely. Mm -hmm. And you can turn an idea around in maybe a month or so. You know, mm -hmm. Have the idea, build it, deploy it, get the data. Maybe a week is sort of a, the shortest I've seen. There was a group, a, a team at, uh, at Netflix at one time, which every Monday they'd meet and decide, have a look at the data for the weekend, decide what they were going to do for the next week, get it deployed by Friday, and then meet the next Monday to see what happened over the weekend. Cool. Right? And they got that cycle going and they were churning through lots of different algorithms for personalization. Mm -hmm. and so I, I think that's, it, it's a really fundamental thing. We're seeing lots of, um, lots of companies now where you, your ability to provide a better customer experience is really the critical differentiating thing. And the mm. ability to, to do hypothesis testing and A-B testing is really the only way you can be sure that you actually are moving, you know, your gradient descent is heading towards an optimum, right? Yeah. And you're, you're finding your way into the, that, the, the good zone for things. So Adrian, we're just uh, coming to the end of our time together. Just one final thing we just wanted to wrap up with you, kind of looking a little bit into the future and uh, Arthur C. Clarke, that uh, famous sci-fi author, had a, a second law uh, which states that the only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible. Mm -hmm. how, do, how do you see that playing out in a, lot, in a lot of businesses? Do you find yourself constantly looking or how far in the future do you typically look for, for, for the things that are coming down the pipe? I think there's, there's a few different like, I, I'm going to quote somebody else as, a, an, as a, another uh, famous quote in this area, which is Alan Kay, who said, uh, the best way to predict the future is to invent it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Right? So, and uh, by you know, this podcast, somebody will be going to implement one of the, uh, the mainframe. The, the, <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the, so I've just, uh, no, and that will become the future because it got, because it got invented by somebody. And, you know, so, um, so that, that's one way of looking at it is like, uh, and part of it is just to be, in every organization, it's good to have some people that are like, what is like the meerkat in the colony, the one that's standing out and looking around, uh -huh. yeah. that, scanning the, yep. scanning the, the horizon. Terrain, yeah. who, is, who is looking out at what's going on in yeah. the industry as opposed to heads down trying to build that latest feature, right? So you've got to have some people that do that. Um, going to conferences, talking about stuff, meeting your peers, those kinds of things. So when I went on the conference circuit, I was exposed to a lot more ideas and I was one of those people. Yeah, part of my role as an architect at Netflix was to bring these ideas in and say, shouldn't we be doing Redis? We've got Memcached, but right. there's a lot of people out there doing Redis. Yeah. Like, oh no, yeah. we're just doing Memcached. No, but you really should be paying attention <laughs> to Redis. Yeah. And they went, eventually they started, and they found, okay, this is the use case for this, this thing. And it wasn't like, a, it was a new thing. It's just, mm. I noticed that it was popping up yeah. So, so trends were evolving. In the yeah, okay. yeah. You you start to see um, people talking about new things at events. So some of it is is that out that looking out and bringing ideas in and asking the questions. For that. the architect role for me was mostly asking questions, documenting the architecture, what people had built, and trying to get at least a little bit ahead of everyone else in terms of thinking about what might come next. Um, the the other side of this is that you typically, across an organization, there are one or two teams where the people are just a little bit more pioneering mm -hmm. and sort of encourage them and let them hire more pioneering people. And if you create a concentrated pioneering risk-taking team, they develop ways of pioneering safely and going fast and evaluating things quickly. 
right? And there's maybe a bunch of other teams that just want to get the work done. Yeah. And they want a well-beaten path to go down. Who yeah. Tell us the process. Give mm -hmm. me the standard install laptop, and I will write code. Yeah. And I will be. Or the happy. container. It's yeah. Or the container. Yeah. You know, it's like, but the other people, like these people, are installing the latest IDE and trying yeah. the new things, right? So how do you play? How do you play that around? And there's typically a platform team, which is the common stuff everyone's doing. And the way I've seen that work best is the platform team basically runs an adoption service for ideas. Mm -hmm. They don't have to develop all the ideas because they don't have the bandwidth to do everything, but the pioneering team will work with the platform or one of the dependencies teams and say, okay, we, the platform would code review the new idea that would be developed in the pioneering team's mm -hmm. sort of space. And eventually they would sort of, it would get cleaned up enough and documented enough to be adopted. And quite often that's where you'd open source that. And this is the model at Hysterix, the circuit breaker pattern. Right. It was developed inside the API service mm -hmm. by a team of very a pioneering minded team that was working mm -hmm. in the API area. And they developed this, pro this, this capability. We, it was open sourced as Hysterix. And the, at the same time, it was basically baked into the platform and lots of other teams started using it at that time. And one of the things you find inside companies is you get much better code reuse for the stuff you put outside. And then this thing is out there, and, I, and those, the historic stuff came from a, a book called Release It by Michael Nygaard. Mm -hmm. and, and my contribution to this whole thing was I gave that book to the API right. team and said, you great should read, read this. Yeah. It's a great book. And, and I knew Michael. I'd met him at conferences. So at one of the like, San Francisco QCon Summit or something, Michael Nygaard's giving a talk. And we're giving a talk about Hysterix, the first public talk, I think, about Hysterix, or one of the early ones. And, and I'm talking to Michael. And I actually introduced like a Hysterix team person. Yeah. <laughs> then here is Michael Nygaard. And Michael, they just implemented a chunk of your book. He said, what? <laughs> yeah, look. And there's this thing is there. And you, it was a great opportunity to bring people together and your book influenced this and all these things. So there's this idea that you have an idea, you have to place the idea in a little catalytic effect, dropping ideas mm, into yeah. interesting places, and having some people willing to pick it up and run with it, and then sharing things out uh, by the conference circuit. And so I think that that is the, uh, the best way. And you know, the, the, the summit we just had here, I've talked to a lot of customers here, they're saying one of the issues they have is that it's hard to find the people with the experience of, to, to do all these AWS things. And so, well, we just had 6,000 people come to a free summit and trained mm -hmm. as many as we could. So we're trying to help here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this, the, the summit program and reInvent is just a huge customer training opportunity. I'm glad to be part of it and to see you know, all of the enthusiasm. That, you know, we've, we've maxed out the building. Yeah, we this did. Time. Yeah. We, yeah. we got to go find a bigger place. Yeah. That's right. Well, Adrian, thank you so much for spending uh, your precious time with us. We really appreciate your insights yeah. on the podcast and uh, enjoy your time in Australia. Thanks very much. And uh, best of luck for the rest of the summers because you're traveling off to uh, Singapore for the summit there and I'm going to be giving a keynote. I'm the keynote speaker in Singapore and one of the reasons I was here is I was shadowing Werner and sort of, you know, watching closely and I get to try and figure out how to, how to be the not Werner, but somehow similar. Well, you, need, you, need a, you need a funky T-shirt for starters. You need some <laughs> obscure. I think, I think kind the of... funky T-shirts are the least of my problems. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think it did pretty well. We talked about me cats and mainframes, so that's pretty funky. It's yeah. pretty out there. Yeah. So, Adrian, thank you so much for your time. I know you're very pressed. So, uh, enjoy your stay here, and uh, all the best for the rest of the circuit. Thanks for the summit. Thanks. Signing off. This is Russ, and this is Dr. Pete. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, 
and tune in again to learn more about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to the AWS Tech Chat through iTunes, SoundCloud, or by Googling AWS Tech Chat.